So the, um, the kind of foundational sutta, if discourse of the Buddha, if there, if there were one in our tradition, would be this one called the Satipatthana Sutta. And that word means foundation of mindfulness or establishment of mindfulness. Sati is this quality of mindfulness, of awareness of the present moment without judgment that we cultivate. And Patana means something that serves as a foundation for or helps to establish. So it's actually worth pondering that for a moment, is that the practices, this this discourse is is just a series of practices, essentially. Um, Most of them are pretty simple. And, uh, And they constitute the practices that establish mindfulness. So if we practice in the way described in this discourse... Um, mindfulness will be established in us. That's the result. So yeah, in a way we're practicing mindfulness while we're doing them. That's certainly true. But it has an aim, and the aim is to deepen or establish, deeply establish mindfulness in our mind. And I'm not going to, my aim tonight at least is not to those are the motion sensor lights. Could somebody wave their arms a bit? <laughs> it's really much nicer. Oh, is it nicer? Well, that was great. Okay, we'll leave them off. It's a little dark. <laughs> okay, so we're still learning about this new space. Thank you for doing that. I'm not sure why they're not going on. There we go. We can maybe there's a dimmer, I think, on the side. Yeah, perfect. So there are no uh, interruptions in meditation. It's all, it's all just the flow. So my aim tonight is not to go through in detail all of the practices, although that's an interesting survey to do. Uh, it's to kind of hone in on a nice link that um, one teacher has described And that is the connection between these four ways of establishing mindfulness. There's four to four, I like to call them domains, sometimes domains that we can be aware of, and the four noble truths of our practice, or the four liberating insights that the Buddha had in order to reach awakening. He had a number of insights, but these... Uh, these four that are encapsulated in the Four Noble Truths are often quoted and important. And they actually connect to these four ways that we're mindful. So that's kind of nice, right? The ways that we're establishing awareness are leading our mind toward having the really basic understandings that are considered essential for freeing the mind. So how does that work So the first foundation of mindfulness, you know, domain of experience that we look at, is the body. We did that in the guided meditation. We scanned through the body, and then we focused on the breath. And it's a nice, obvious, simple foundation of mindfulness. It's very, fairly easy to be aware of the body for most people, although we discover as we do it that uh, we're not as aware of our body as we might have thought. 
You know, I've had a body my whole life. I know about it. When you sit down and do mindfulness practice, you discover a lot about the body that you weren't aware of. Whole parts of it that you don't feel or strange sensations. But the body has a lot of richness to it, and the practices in the sutta are about paying attention to our posture, our breathing, uh, noticing the parts of the body. Bob teaches the 32 parts meditation, and that comes from this discourse. Noticing the body has certain basic experiences that are called elements. They're not elements like hydrogen and carbon, but they're fundamental experiences that make up the body of solidity, cohesion, heat, and motion. And considering that the body will die and that it will someday be a corpse, that's also a very important contemplation. So these ways of bringing awareness to the body are written about, and they connect to the first noble truth, which is what? Anyone know? There is suffering. I heard that from several people. So the first noble truth, there is, in in our experience, suffering, or the word is dukkha. Um, I kind of prefer unsatisfactoriness or something else. There's a... There's a feeling of offness in our experience often. Not every single moment. We have moments of total contentment. But a lot of the time we have a feeling of uh, disturbance or agitation or uh, dukkha actually means like a a wagon wheel where the center is, the axle's going in off-center. And you know what it would feel like to ride on a wheel like that. And if our life ever feels like that, that's dukkha. (laughs) So um, this is linked to the body. It's interesting, right? When we think of our body, of course our body isn't only suffering, obviously. But how, how easeful is your body, really? How much time do you spend feeding, cleaning, grooming, sleeping and resting and otherwise attending to exercising the body. It's a huge amount of our day goes into maintaining this thing. And, you know, in some ways, some of those activities are enjoyable, of course, to some degree. But they're also a little fatiguing, aren't they? All that effort going into that and our livelihood so that we can put a roof over this body's head buy food for it, etc. So we're asked to look at the challenges of bodily life through this first foundation. We see that it's made of these parts. You know, the body's beautiful, and if we dress it up in some ways, maybe you perceive it that way. But it's made of stuff that's not that beautiful. Skin, muscle, organs. If those were spread out on the floor... You wouldn't think it was that beautiful. It also includes things like all the liquids, blood, pus, urine, feces, the stuff in your gut that's still digesting. We know what that's like. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff about the body that's not that beautiful. And it's kind of associated with 
some of the challenges in life. And in the end, it's going to die and decay. So, um, you know, now that's not to say that we should get totally repulsed by our body and think that we shouldn't have it and hate it. That would be an extreme reaction. Actually, the body's useful. Uh, if we didn't have it, we couldn't be here <laughs> among each other, listening to the Dharma, meditating. So there are definitely uh, nice things that can happen because we have a body. We can appreciate those. But the body is associated with a lot of the troubles in our life. And if your body isn't giving you much trouble right now, wait a few decades. <laughs> So, these establishments of mindfulness help us to realize that if we had sort of a bias toward thinking the body's a great thing, it just balances it out a little bit. (laughs) If we really pay attention to the body, we get a more balanced view of it. And then the, the second foundation of mindfulness, second practice, set of practices. Actually, there's only a couple um, described in the discourse is related to the area of experience that's called feeling tone. And what is that? Well, that's the, the affective quality of experience. It's not our feelings, like our emotions. That's a more of a Western idea. But feeling tone is whether experience feels pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant, also called neutral. And actually all experience has a flavor like that. It's pleasant, it's unpleasant or painful, or it's kind of, eh, you know, neither really. Like as an example, often the breath is fairly neutral. Like if you think you don't know what neutral sensation is, the touch of the clothing on the skin is usually neutral, except when you have that tag in the back and then it's unpleasant, or you just got it out of the dryer and then it's pleasant. Right? So, usually those are kind of neutral experiences. Actually, the vast majority of experience is neutral. We just don't pay attention to it as much. We like the drama of the pleasant and the unpleasant. And this, you know, why is this a domain of mindfulness? You know, why would you... That means that the practice is actually to sit and pay attention to whether the flow of experience is pleasant, unpleasant, or neither. It changes very rapidly. Where we look at parts of the body and we scan the body, where are there sort of broad regions of pleasant or unpleasant or neither? Um, why is that important? Well, the you know why was that singled out? Well, the Buddha was very astute to notice that that is the point. The the pleasant or unpleasant aspect of experience is the point where we make a decision that we like it or we don't like it. We want it or we don't want it. And that is where the trouble starts. (laughs) So, you know, if it's pleasant, I like it. I want it. I want more. I want it to continue. If it's unpleasant, oh, I don't like it. Oh, stop. Make that end. How can I prevent it? And this uh, is our usual strategy for happiness, really. And it's very, very humbling when we start paying attention to pleasant and unpleasant and realize that this is what drives our life. From morning to night, we aim to have pleasant experiences and we aim not to have unpleasant experiences, for the most part. 
Um, you might say, no, I'm not that. I mean, amoebas can do that. Going toward the sugar and away from the bright light. Amoebas do that. We do that too. It's actually the basis for um, our uh, viewpoints also, is that we, we create whole life philosophies based on not wanting to have an unpleasant feeling tone in the mind about something we don't think shouldn't be there in the world, so we create a philosophy around it. And so this was the point where the Buddha said, this is, this is the danger point. Because, first of all, ha- has it worked? Have you done it? Have you managed in your life up to this point to have a day that was 100% pleasant and there was no unpleasant? Have you worked it out yet? I haven't. <laughs> so, and I'm beginning to get the sense that uh, it's not real likely I'm going to succeed at that one. So this is a point where we start realizing this is not the right strategy for happiness. That's a big moment in practice. What else is there? I mean, it's not like I would seek the unpleasant and try to eliminate the pleasant. So what's the alternative? That's coming. But this is, this is the point where the Buddha noticed that this is where the mind, what's called begins to crave and cling to experience. And that those are the points where suffering begins. As soon as we've decided, this is horrible, I have to get rid of it. My knee is hurting during meditation. And the mind grabs onto that. Instead of just saying, it's an unpleasant experience, I'm just going to sit here with that. The mind grabs on and says, oh, gosh, this is terrible. I don't have practice sitting on the floor. Why did I sit on the floor today? How, how much longer is the sitting? I think if I keep sitting like this, I'm going to need knee surgery. You know, we're like way far from the present moment. That's sort of a minor example, but think about more substantial things that we think need to happen or think shouldn't happen and how much suffering goes into that. As soon as the mind grasps on to how it should be, and, but it isn't, that is suffering. That's unsatisfactoriness. We've decided the world should not be as it is. But it can't be any other way than the way it is at this moment. Maybe the future, it could be something different. But this moment is happening. It is as it is. And so if we object to that, suffering. That's why it's important. So the alternative strategy that the Buddha suggests, is a little shift. It's a big shift, really, but it's a little shift. Instead of pleasant and unpleasant, what if you framed your life around things that are beneficial or unbeneficial? Where beneficial means leading away from suffering, and unbeneficial means leading toward suffering. Wouldn't that be a better path to get to the end of suffering? is to divide experience into those two things. So we have to start weaning our mind away from just paying attention to pleasant and going for that, and instead checking, is this a kind of pleasant that's actually beneficial? And if it is, okay, I can go with that. And if it isn't, let go. Don't go with that. That's what mindfulness is for. And so we have the awareness to see that and know that and discernment. Sati Sampajanya, mindfulness and clear comprehension. What is good direction to go and what is not. It's not pleasant and unpleasant, it's wholesome and unwholesome. 
towards suffering and away from suffering. We have to learn what that is, by the way. We don't necessarily know <laughs> offhand. Some would know, but it gets subtle. So there's, don't worry, because a lot of things that are beneficial and lead away from suffering are actually pleasant. Most of them are, in fact. So you're not giving up a lot in terms of, you know, when you go for the beneficial, probably it's going to be pleasant. The issue is that a lot of things that are pleasant are not beneficial. So it's a bigger category, pleasant, than beneficial, right? So you have to be careful. And a lot of things that are unbeneficial are unpleasant. So it's fine to push those away. We don't want them not with a strong aversion, but you know, we don't do those things. But then there are those things that are beneficial and unpleasant to train ourselves to do those, and things that are unbeneficial and pleasant to train ourselves to refrain from those. It's the practice of ethics. So this is associated then with the second noble truth, which says that the origin of suffering, the arising of suffering, occurs along with the arising of grasping. And we, we can see this in our own experience. Once, once somebody tells us, and then we start looking, we're like, oh, wow, look at that. The moment I'm like grabbing onto it, it leads to suffering. So this is the second noble truth, as shown through the feeling tone of the second foundation of mindfulness. So, don't worry, the first two noble truths are the challenging ones. <laughs> and we start thinking, ah, oh, this body that I thought was the greatest thing is actually challenging. <laughs> and this life philosophy I had, that I should go for the pleasant and try not to have the unpleasant, and that's what will make me happy, that's shown to be bankrupt. <laughs> so, <laughs> where do I go from here? <laughs> and... The, um, the answer is so simple. It's to turn to the mind. It's the mind that knows which way is beneficial and unbeneficial, and it's the mind that's beautiful, actually. Not the, not the body so much. Not that the body isn't beautiful, and not that nature isn't beautiful, but the mind is where it really gets beautiful. You know, people who have freed their hearts, very, very beautiful flowing with love, compassion, generosity, uh, not caught up in anger and envy and conceit. People like that are great, aren't they? We all know some. They don't have to be Buddhist practitioners or meditators. We know people like that. who have very big hearts, very clear wisdom. We want to be around them. So the third noble truth is about the cessation of suffering says that there is an end. It is actually possible to take this all the way to the point where there isn't any dukkha. It doesn't happen by getting rid of our body, and it doesn't happen by perfecting our body. It happens by training the mind. And the third foundation of mindfulness, the third establishment of mindfulness, is to observe what's called the citta, which is a combination of the mind and the heart, and to notice... What's going on with that? So, for example, right now, how's your heart? Just feel. There's no right answer. Well, there's a right answer for you. Maybe it feels somewhat peaceful. Maybe it feels a little bored. Maybe it feels calm. 
Maybe it's confused. Maybe it's irritated. There's something going on for you. And it's really, really helpful to be mindful of that, actually. Because otherwise, we put the blame in the wrong place. <laughs> like, if we're in an irritated mood, if you're, I guarantee if your mind is feeling irritated, you will walk into Trader Joe's and you will see the ugly sweater on the person in front of you. You will see that the aisles are overcrowded. You will see that the line is too long at the register and they don't have enough cashiers available. That's what you'll see. And it's because there's this filter coming from the mind. And if you're not aware, you're going to say, well, Trader Joe's sucks. You know, I hate this store. (laughs) But it's such a giving away of your power to think that the world what's out there can seriously undermine your deepest happiness. Not that there aren't unpleasant things, not that there aren't things we need to work with out there, but the heart is where there can be freedom, and actually the heart is stronger than any of that. You can be a social activist, um, a refugee helper, you know, really caring about the suffering of the world with a heart that's pure and free. Doesn't, and doesn't have suffering in it. So the world doesn't have to be fixed for that. And the third foundation of mindfulness, where we start tuning into our mind and heart, we begin to learn that. This is the great, the good news. This is the third level truth, is the good news, that there is a way not to suffer. And the practice of the third noble truth is very, of the third foundation of mindfulness, is very simple. It says, notice if your mind has lust, or if your mind does not have lust at this moment. And then there's a bunch of other things. Notice if your mind has anger or does not have anger at this moment. Notice if your mind is influenced by delusion or is not at this moment. And there's several others. Those are the three big ones, lust, anger, and delusion. It's an interesting practice because it doesn't have any judgment in it. It doesn't say, notice if your mind has anger, and if it does, stamp it out. <laughs> Get rid of it. It says notice. And as soon as you know that there's anger there, you're actually free of it already in some, to some degree. And so the third foundation of mindfulness offers us the possibility of temporary, what's called temporary liberation of the mind. So we are temporarily free of our anger because we are aware that it's there. We've let it go. Because what notices anger is not angry. What can see it isn't in it. So we start to get a sense, oh, there's a, there's a way that this could, could maybe be all the time, maybe. We start to get a glimpse. We, have, we start to get a glimpse of a mind that's temporarily in actually a really good state. I mean, check your mind right now. Are you seriously under the influence of lust? How about anger? Maybe, but it's unlikely in a setting like this with what we've done. Feel that. Feel in your mind and heart what it's like not to be angry. What a good feeling. It's good to to notice that so that your mind will like that. That's that's one of those beneficial things that it's good to go toward. It's pleasant and you can go toward it. And so, but if we're not aware, if we have no idea what the mind without anger feels like, it's harder to find it, right? So we, we prepare ourselves by noticing 
what is and what is not in the mind. And then we can start to make those decisions more clearly about which way to go with our mind, which practices to choose to bring out the beneficial qualities and diminish the unbeneficial ones. And then the fourth foundation of mindfulness is called the mindfulness of the dhammas. I'll just give the word for it and what does that mean. That means um, beginning to see experience in terms of certain patterns that we're, that we're told. You know, Like we see, a, we see our experience already in terms of certain patterns. They're the patterns that we learned of what objects are. I'm just trying to make an analogy. So we know what chairs are and cushions and the bell and so forth. And so when we walk in, we don't have to like just look at bars and bars of light and color and try to like discern what all that is. We already know that, right? And so the fourth foundation of mindfulness points toward a different set of patterns with which to notice what's happening in our mind. So, for example, we're to notice if the mind has... Um, what are called the five hindrances in it, which are things that block wisdom and concentration. And we're supposed to notice if the mind has the seven factors of awakening in them, the first of which is mindfulness. So you might have that. And and just to start to see, to check, oh, what's in the mind? Is it part of these sets of qualities that are good to notice? And this is the key to the fourth foundation, is it brings in conditionality, it brings in causation, So, for example, if we discover that the mind has the hindrance of ill will, say, um, or anger, and we notice, oh, there's there's that in the mind, then we do a little investigation. How did that come about? You know, did I? What is it that brought that up? What was the moment? I I I haven't been angry all day, but now I am. What was the moment where that changed? And so we try to discern that. We try to figure out, okay, what brought that on? And now that I've got it, uh, how do I get out of it? This is skillful action. You know, so what can I do to let go of this? And maybe sometimes it's good enough just to notice. As soon as we notice the anger, it's gone. Sometimes it's a little more tenacious and we need to apply some other remedy, loving kindness or reflection on the disadvantages of anger. There's a lot of things, a lot of options. But this fourth foundation brings in the causation, so the understanding of how the mind got to be how it is and how it can be shaped in a nice direction going forward. And what is that? That's the path, which is the fourth noble truth. The path from here to a mind without suffering. So if there's something in it that's disturbing, like a hindrance, the path is to get out of that. And if there's something beautiful in the mind, like joy or energy, concentration, then the path is to enhance that. This is not a path of just, like, whatever is fine. It's okay to, to cultivate. Of course, at some point, the very act of cultivating is disturbing to the mind. And so it's, you know, there are t- it's not like we're always having to do something and fix it and figure it out. It's very appropriate at times to just let go and mindfulness itself does a lot of the work. In fact, we let mindfulness do itself do more and more of the work as the path goes on.
So the, the fourth noble truth is also really good news because we, we observe our own mind moving toward awakening. You know, maybe we're not going to get there by tomorrow, but we observe, and maybe not in, you know, we don't observe in over two minutes that something great is evolving, or, or we might, but, you know, over time, like over months or years, we see, wow, I've really changed in the way I respond to something. Or a small thing, you know, wow, I would normally have gotten angry at my boss at that moment, and today I didn't. Huh, that's kind of cool. How did that happen? It's not like I went to anger management training. Mindfulness started to change the way the mind wants to operate. It happens over time, and we can really start to get an appreciation for the path. We develop confidence in the practices. So, these four ways of paying attention to our experience bear fruit in understanding the Four Noble Truths, which is the mark of an awakened person. An awakened person fully understands those Four Noble Truths. So these practices of mindfulness and these areas of paying attention directly support the goal. Even at the simplest level of sitting there and saying, ankle pain. This mat isn't very thick. (laughs) So that moment is a moment of mindfulness which cultivates the path. So, even if you didn't, you know, even if this was a little abstract because you didn't know those two lists of the four establishments of mindfulness and the four noble truths, I hope it gives a sense of kind of what this practice is about. You know, it's about training the mind so that it doesn't keep causing itself trouble. So much trouble in the way we interact with our world. And, um,. You know, we're making ourselves into beings that respond in helpful ways in the world, or at least not with increasing the suffering of the world, compounding it. So, and if you do know those lists, I hope it was interesting to see them connected. Are there any questions or comments? Yeah, Inani. Um, so, uh, you've mentioned that there, there are um, certain uh, experiences or um, feeling states that we can check in with within ourselves like anger is one. Um, uh, Are there a lot of them? (laughs) I'll read the list. (laughs) I'll read the list. Um, This is from the, the instruction from the sutta. One knows a mind with lust to be a mind with lust, or one knows a mind without lust to be a mind without lust. 
and then I'll read the other pairs. With anger, without anger, with delusion, without delusion, contracted, distracted, become great, not become great, surpassable, unsurpassable, concentrated, not concentrated, liberated, not liberated. Well, I, th- I think, um, you know, I, I, I appreciate having the list so that I could just become uh, accustomed to it. Um, but also, um, the one that comes up for me frequently is delusional. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, um, <laughs> because it's just so easy to think one knows and, and doesn't, you know, about, about... Yeah, we project a lot, don't we? Yeah, and, and so, you know, I, I, um, I don't know, I just, I often just find it helpful to remember. <laughs> to remember the humility that we don't know necessarily. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah, that's a very good practice. A lot of people don't do that. So it kind of just leaves everything sort of open in a way. It's sort of like, well, <laughs> um, you know, be, being with another person, you know, and like, oh gosh, you know, it's going like this, and ah, why, <laughs> why, why is that person doing this, you know? And then it's sort of like, well, who knows what's really. <laughs> you know, um, happening, in, that is, um, in a way that could, like, let's say, to cause more trouble, you know? So it's like... Yeah, so letting, letting go of fixed views, essentially. Right. Yeah. That would be part of this, being aware of that, being aware of the lines movement toward creating a view, for example. Yes, it just seems like that's going to take a long time. Well, the mind has been trained to (laughs) behave in different ways (laughs) for much of our lives, and we're trying to retrain it. And so, yeah, it's a process. But luckily you get results right away. I mean, even though you may not get all the way, there's like, as soon as we start doing anything that improves the mind, it's already immediate improvement in well-being. Can you address surpassable and unsurpassable? Surpassable and unsurpassable. Um, yeah. So that has to do with... Um, whether the mind, I mean, I don't want to put too exact a point on it. I think this is something that is interpreted by different people, but what I would um, offer from having read about it and observed is that a surpassable mind is one that is not in its most excellent state possible at this moment. Um, Although, in a sense, our mind is always in the most the best thing it could be. But we could, you know, like a temporary liberation of mind 
um, would be an unsurpassable mind at that moment. So if we're in a temporary liberation of metta, we have boundless metta. Or if we feel, we check, and we find that our metta is limited, it's bounded in some way, we would say, oh, this mind can be surpassed. It could be more boundless than it is. Um, Like in the future, it could go in that direction. So we're aware whether we are in a temporary liberation or in a a limited state. It doesn't have to be like full awakening, but there are states of the mind that are uh, what are actually... uh, yeah, perfections at that moment. Does that make sense? It's a little vague, but yeah. That's my understanding of surpassable and unsurpassable. I was just appreciating that you uh, <clears throat> spoke to the beauty of the mind. Mm-hmm. I think in um, mindfulness... <laughs> worlds and communities, the mind can be so pathologized in a way. And there's uh, such an emphasis on, on the body. Yeah. Um, because you know, the mind is often seen as this problematic thing that trips us up and gets us caught. But actually, the, the way that I understood what you were talking about is that the mind is beautiful because it is the thing that is the mediator with our with our world can, can allow such beauty when it's cleansed. Yeah, when it's cleansed, exactly. When it's developed, an undeveloped mind is does have all those problems. But it's the it's the part of our experience that has the potential to be to become beautiful and stay that way. The body doesn't have that potential. Mm. Yeah. And that's where freedom is found. It's found in the mind. Yeah. Well, it's probably when the mind is cleansed, then the body and the mind become harmonized. Mm-hmm. That's right. There's a, a teacher on this retreat um, called it a through connection between mind and heart and body, and those things become uh, better and better aligned. Yeah. But even a, even a body that's associated with a completely liberated mind gets ill and gets old and dies. The Buddha had back pain. The Buddha had illnesses. Um, so, and that's not to say that those things are unclean. They're totally natural. But, um, yeah. The body has its own karma. It's, it's going that way. And, of course, the mind affects the body. We can certainly improve the body through improving the mind. Because of that through connection, it's going to be as healthy as it can be at that moment. It won't have any additional burdens placed on it by not being harmonized. Um, yeah. Yeah, Rex? It, it seems as though discussing this list has been just at the moment, say, that you realize that you're clinging to your anger. It's, it's almost like you've got a double or triple play going on. <laughs> I don't know how else to analogize it, sorry. But, that, you know, you, 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 you're, you're, you're clinging to anger and your mind until that point was surpassable. 
Definitely surpassable if it was in anger. Yeah. And yeah, it's a very humbling moment to realize that we're clinging to anger because it's we're clinging to something that's harming us. It's like holding a hot coal, right? But yeah, letting go of that then is very powerful. Is that what you're pointing toward? Well, in part, but that these lists, they, you know, that you're not just you're not just one or the other of these things on these lists. Mm, they interconnect, is what you're saying. Yeah. Sometimes all happening at the same time. Uh huh. For sure. At any given moment, we may be having a physical experience and it has a feeling tone and the mind is relating to it. They're all there. You may be angry that you're near. Uh, yeah, exactly. We can focus on different aspects. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.